life gets a lot better when we get better at asking ourselves, do I want to solve the problem or do I need to solve how I feel about the problem? Sometimes we take the wrong action and I think that leads to tons of suffering. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We got a special guest today, Amy Morin. You are a an author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And then you have a, a series after that as well of the like same tone, right? I think one that's about children, one's about couples, stuff like that. Am I right? You are correct. Um, book number six just came out. Oh, wow. What's what's the sixth one? The sixth one is a couples one, 13 mm. Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. Okay. Well, tell me what they are. Uh, what the couples don't do? Uh, no, let's start from the beginning, actually. What's... Uh, uh, you're, so let, let's just talk about you a little bit. You're a uh, um, psychotherapist, right? Correct. So I started my career in rural Maine as a psychotherapist and thought I'd be sitting in an office doing therapy and then uh, went through a series of losses in my own life. My mom passed away. My husband died. Uh, my father-in-law passed away. I lost a former foster child. Like the list went on and on. I had a decade that I would never want to revisit, but the good thing, if anything good came out of it, was I wrote myself a letter called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and the list went viral, and uh, that's why I get to still speak about mental strength today. Well, sure. It sounds like you've been through it. Um, can, let me ask, how is psychotherapy in rural Maine? <laughs> so when I started, it, it was 20 years ago, I guess, when I started doing it in rural Maine. Mm. And uh, things have changed a lot. I don't practice in Maine anymore. I now live in South Florida. But uh, things changed a lot in 20 years. I think the stigma of mental health definitely got better. Uh, treatment became more accessible. And uh, we saw a lot more people who were uh, willing to see some to see a therapist, I think one of the biggest problems 20 years ago was nobody wanted their car to be seen in the parking lot in rural Maine. Or you might run into, if you're a teacher, you might run into one of your students in the waiting room. I think that has gotten a lot better over the years. Sure, yeah, I bet. Um, certainly in my community, that's been the case. I think people are a lot more open about uh, trying to find some kind of help, right, when they're going through rough times. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely a big one for us is the stigma, I guess. Um, now we're kind of dealing with, in my opinion, how misunderstood psychological, uh, God, what a word, psychological trauma is, um, at least in the veteran community. I, I want to bring this up because I'm kind of curious of your take, because I, I assume most of the folks that you deal with are not military veterans, probably, right? Uh, right. Some are, but definitely mm. not the majority. So it, it seems to me like, at least for men... And men who have lived the life that I have, which, you know, there's we, we a lot of us had fucked up childhoods, too. But um, just focusing on the the aftermath of war and stuff, I feel like it's really misunderstood by everyone that's trying to help us right now. Um, there's a sense that the individual is broken or something that uh, and I guess in some instances that is true, but. In my experiences, that's generally not the case. It's, it's usually, um, let me see how to frame this. Um, I think it's a a, la a loss of identity and purpose that drives a lot of this trauma. You know what I mean? The, or at least the the side effects that we see. Um, and then, and it's compounded by the fact that 
a lot of these people don't really fear death anymore, at least the suicide problem itself. Like, uh, I think a lot of people experience the same types of trauma and shit, but um, in combat, you can't be afraid to die, right? Otherwise, you'll be paralyzed. You just kind of have to, and it's a fucked up thing to think about, but you kind of just have to accept that you're not going to make it, right? So you just do what you do. Um, and then you come back home and, like, a lot of that reckless behavior that you see when someone first gets home from a deployment like that, or, uh, and I, and I would say you probably see the same kind of reckless behavior after, uh, losing a parent or a, a, a sibling or a spouse or, or a big breakup or something like that. People seem to get a little wild. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, you, again, you bring that back into the regular world and the civilian life and you should fear, death a little bit right like it's a good guardrail to keep you from doing stupid shit fear is not intrinsically negative it's something to make you not do dumb shit right um so you know i think it's become like part of their character to be tough part of their character to be uh you know like a shark on the move all the time and then you know all of that's kind of all of that aggression if you want to call it that is kind of focused on a single point like a laser you know what i mean like to protect people or whatever it is and then you get back into ordinary life and it's just like there's no focus anymore and then you know you start to lose your identity like all these things that can you know aggression's not intrinsically positive or negative either you know none of these things are but they do seem to take a negative bend when there's not some kind of focus when you don't have a purpose or an identity right so i wonder if you and your work um, see some similarities there. I do. And in the veterans that I work with, a lot of them will say the skills that kept me alive now are a detriment to me now that I'm not in the military anymore. Then I had to suppress everything, all of my feelings, my emotions. We didn't have place to uh, room to deal with our feelings. Obviously on the battlefield, you're not going to sit there and start talking about your anxiety. So they suppressed everything and then they come back and they say, well, now uh, I'm numb to everything. So we see people who will do reckless things, sabotage themselves. Sometimes it's about feeling, sometimes it's about just not caring at all, thinking, well, if something bad happens to me, so be it. Uh, but we see that with a lot of other trauma victims as well. People who survived childhood trauma, the foster children I used to work with and the ones that I had in my home, a lot of them struggle with similar things i think for some people it's easier to to get help there's more treatment available we know for a lot of people who served in the military asking for help was not on the top of their list of things to do because for a long time that would have been seen as a weakness so then you come home and suddenly people are telling you to get help acting as if you're broken and the last thing you want to do is reach out and say hey i'm struggling and then when people do they find that services are often aren't equipped or that people aren't prepared to deal with what they went through? How do you see a, a therapist who perhaps has no idea what you went through versus somebody who maybe better understands it in the military? And that loss of purpose that you are talking about too is something a lot of people don't struggle with to the extent that I think people in the military do. Somebody who's 65 and they retire from their position as a doctor or a lawyer, they knew it was coming, that's how life works and, and they move on. But when somebody says, you know, as of Three months ago, I was on the battlefield. I had all sorts of social support because the people around me were going through the exact same thing. Now I come home and I'm working a regular job, living with my family, and nobody around me knows what I've been through or what I'm going through. 
and suddenly I feel completely isolated and yeah, I feel like I'm just wandering around without a, a real sense of meaning and purpose. And we all need a sense of purpose to get out of bed in the morning aside from just uh, earning money and paying our bills. We need to have more to life than that. Yeah, I like I, there's a meme that just popped into my head. It's kind of, uh, I guess, fatalistic, but it, it's basically like um, get a job and then trade pieces of paper with people until you die, right? Right. It's like, all right, let's not do that. But yeah, it's a, one of the things um, you said definitely rings. I mean, it's uh, a lot of the stuff we learn in combat, compartmentalization, things like that. Do like you, it's not that you have to necessarily undo those things you just have to learn when you get back how to apply them appropriately in this new situation right which is something that we being flexible and and resilient uh in in problem solving conditions in the military is something that we train people to do right we just don't train them how to do it once they get home it's interesting uh so people will invariably start down the path of uh, uh, experiential avoidance which never works right i mean that it's that's fucking dumb to, to it, compartmentalization works for a time. Right. And it's useful to be able to do that. Like right. the, the best time to be calm is when everybody else is panicking. That's, that's certainly a skill that you can use no matter where you are in your life. But if you never address anything, uh, then it's going to get fucked up pretty quickly. I mean, it's, it's, you're poisoning the well for lack of a better phrase. And the, the real problem is, so it's very obvious the isolation that, you describe for people who are veterans, right? Who are coming back maybe from war, maybe from just serving in the military and they're back in their hometown and there's no other military people there. Their friends are all somewhere else. Um, but I would say even the civilian community, this experience, this, this tendency, especially for men that we have to avoid experience like that, to compartmentalize or to shut down or keep it to ourselves or whatever, whatever connections you do have, it chips away at them over time, right? Um, if there are meaningful parts of your life, stuff that are that, that's on your mind a lot, stuff that's weighing on you, stuff that is influencing the decisions you make, and you're not sharing it with the people closest to you, then those relationships grow farther and farther apart, and there's nothing you can do about that, right? I mean, if if a good portion of my if a good portion of my internal dialogue is focused on one thing, particularly one thing that's not particularly positive. And I can't share that with my spouse or my best friends or whatever the fuck else. Then I don't really have a close connection with them anymore. And you, even though those people are around you, uh, you still are going to feel isolated, which is a very dangerous situation. I think that what maybe at least for veterans, I know this is the case. The most dangerous situation we get into is where everything in life seems to be going well. There are people around us, but we don't feel we, we there are people around us and we feel alone and the circumstances are more or less good, but we still feel not right about it. Right. Because then you don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And that's where it's re- fucking real problems start to happen. Right. A lot of people think the solution to loneliness is to be around people, but that's not it. You can feel lonely in a crowded room. And I think when you're in a crowded room and you're lonely or you're hanging out with friends and family and you just aren't connecting to them. That feels a million times worse than if you were at home and you felt lonely and you were by yourself. So I do think it's important to figure out how do we connect to people? And we know that connection is so important for so many different things. When they looked at why some of the 9-11 responders developed post-traumatic stress disorder and others didn't, one of the biggest factors was how much social support they had. 
people who could then talk to somebody and say, look at what I just went through, people that could process things with the people around them, the trauma didn't affect them the same as people who said, I didn't tell anybody and I still don't have anybody to talk to about this. But it's not just, we don't just need those social connections to help us deal with trauma. We also need them to live our best life. Look at tons of the research on happiness and, and longevity. What do they find? It's the connections to people that matter way more than how much money you make or even how much you take care of yourself only affects you so much. If you don't have healthy connections with other people, those good habits will only get you so far in life. It's being able to talk to people, not just hi, hi, warrior, but to be able to really talk about when you're struggling, but to be able to share the happy parts of your life with people too and let people in and to let them know what's really going on with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, I mean, I, I say this a lot to people because a big part of the work I do is trying to get, you know, particularly male veterans refocused on purpose again, you know what I mean? And stop, like it, we, we tend to, we tend to be myopic about these things and get really close to a situation and see that it's fucked up and think, oh, everything is fucked up. It's like, well, no, that one thing is kind of fucked up. So let's back up to the 30,000 foot view a little bit. Um, or I guess in the inverse, you know, we see these problems and we don't, we don't really have the ability to drill down and find root causes very well, especially when it's happening to us for some reason. And maybe that's just the nature of the beast, right? It's difficult to be dispassionate about something that's, that's currently fucking you up. But, you know, one of the things I, I instruct people to do a lot is to understand this simple thing is that we are biologically programmed to serve other people, right? Like that's, that's how we are built is to serve. It's why we signed up for the fucking military in the first place. We didn't do it to go do fun stuff to be as much as people will say that. And maybe there's the odd psychopath who does do that stuff. Um, for the most part, people want to, they, they want to protect their family. Right. And, because of this process called Ken selection, they decided their community or their country or whatever is their family, right? So they want to go to protect that stuff. We're, we're literally biologically programmed to do that shit. So when you find yourself in a position where you're no longer, where, where you no longer feel useful as a servant to other people, that is when deep depression and, and, and uh, self-loathing, I think, really sets in. And it's hard to dick somebody out of that. It's hard to convince somebody that they're worthwhile when they don't believe it. It really is. And for people who are battling depression, people that feel like the best years of their lives are over, somebody struggling with chronic pain and they'll say, well, I can't do much. And there's often this idea that we need to change the whole world. Maybe it's a systemic issue and you think, well, there's nothing I can do. So sometimes we just focus on like, what's one little thing you could change? And maybe it's that you're going to send a kind text message to somebody else. That might be your purpose for today is I'm going to reach out to one person and maybe make somebody else's day better and you're not going to change the whole world, but maybe you can help at least one person today. And it sounds kind of cliche or kind of corny, but when people start to change how they look at that, like, all right, maybe I'm going to just smile at the grocery store clerk today or compliment a stranger that I see outside. Like it's those little things that sometimes help people see, maybe I can make a difference. I'm not going to change everything, but I could change something that's right in front of me. Sure. Yeah. One of the principles of this show, this show is kind of built around a list of principles. One of the, one of them is uh, I'll do something every day to help my country. My countrymen are all men. Right. Um, I think it's, along the same lines of what you're talking about, you're kind of on the lookout for opportunities to do something nice for other people, you know, be, be useful. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, Shia LaBeouf was on John Bernthal's podcast about three months ago, I think. And he was, he, he talked about, cause he's had quite a, 
bit of problems over the last 10 years or so um, until relatively recently. And he was talking about how his life during, cause he was a child star as well. Right. So he's been famous and wealthy for a very long time since before he could really understand life and shit. And his dad wasn't, wasn't a great dude. So kind of on his own, it was like, my life was focused around being happy, right? That was my goal in life was to be as happy as I possibly could be. And I was miserable almost every day. Right. Because, you know, like narcissists, he's staring into the mirror, wondering why it's not better. And then he turns into flowers and shit. Uh, but it's like, uh, he said at some point, and I think it was when he met his wife, uh, or girlfriend at the time. And they started talking about having kids and he just kind of made the decision to, instead of trying to be happy all the time to try to be useful. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to be as useful to my family, to my community, to whomever as, uh, as I can. And then that's when things really clicked for him. And I, I, it's look, it's easy to say this from a a well-adjusted perspective, but I wasn't always like this. You know what I mean? I've, I've been uh, a piece of shit in my life too, just like everybody else, I guess. Um, and it is, it does sound like a platitude to some degree, but it's true that, you know, you're not gonna, in my opinion, you're just not going to help yourself by trying to help yourself. I just don't think like, certainly there are things you should do because we have hardware and software issues here, at least in the vet community where our hormone levels are all fucked up. We've got traumatic brain injury, all this other shit, right? So you definitely should take care of that stuff. Your diet and sleep hygiene should be good. There are definitely things you should do to maintain yourself, to be functional and shit. But if you're sitting around thinking about, well, today wasn't a very good day, you know what I mean? Like, so what can I do to make my day better tomorrow? You're fucked up from the get-go. Like, that's not, that shouldn't even be in part of the conversation. Yeah, I think there's this idea that the avoidance of pain equals happiness and so a lot of people go through their day trying to make it the least painful as possible and when you do that just because you do what feels good right now or you do what you think is going to help you to feel better in five minutes doesn't do anything for actually making tomorrow any better for one because we give into temptations or we indulge Mm -hmm. in things that feel good now but we also know that sometimes you have to experience uncomfortable things to appreciate the good things in life that when you uh, mow the lawn, a cold beer tastes better after you've mowed the lawn than if you just sat on the couch and had a cold beer today. So when you go through the painful things, you can often enjoy the the happiness and the uh, positive emotions a lot more. And to know that, uh, yeah, the happiness is often a byproduct of living a, a useful life. When you feel like you're yeah. out there doing something and contributing to the earth, then the side effect of it is that you feel a boost in your in your happiness. But when people set out to just feel happy or they think I need to change the way I think. And then if I just think positively, I'll, I'll feel better. And I get a lot of people that come into my therapy office too, and they want me to wave a magic wand. They'll say, I need you to give me more confidence so I can go back to college. Well, you know, the best way to gain confidence is sign up for a class and take the action first. Mm. But I, th- I think it's easy to fall into that trap of assuming that first you, everything has to be about changing your mindset first. But sometimes if you change your behavior first, the feeling follows. If you act like a useful person, you feel useful. If you act like a confident person, you start to feel confident. 
but it's tough when you're in a dark place in life. It's tough to take that first step of saying, yeah, but I can't change my behavior. I don't feel like doing it or I can't push myself or uh, I go out there a little bit and I just don't see the results that I want. So I give up too early. And that's real. The real trick, I think, is to really say, OK, I'm not feeling great yet, but I'm going to keep going until I do feel better. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a couple of things in there. One about the cold beer thing. Um, the other element to that is delayed gratification seems to be I don't I don't know why exactly this is an evolutionary trait that makes sense for us maybe it is to compel us to go through the hard stuff as well right uh, or at least to give us some evidence that it works properly but it definitely does I mean any anything you can put between like I, I think a lot of there have been some extremists over the years right like in Buddhism uh, uh, some of these extremists like Jains right who who wear cheesecloth over their mouth so they don't accidentally swallow bugs and shit. That's that's a little bit wild, right? Maybe calm the fuck right. down with that shit. And denying yourself any sort of access to pleasure or whatever but for whatever reason, like that's you're you're getting pretty wild with that stuff, right? But there is something to putting uh negotiable barriers between yourself and the outcome you want, right? Um some people say iron sharpens iron, but there's a lot of ways to say it, but um, and then on the other thing about, about improving your mood, I guess, or improving your, your situation in life, um, there is pretty good research that shows that going through the mechanics of the life that you want to live will produce some good results, right? For example, like if you're feeling depressed and you force yourself to smile, the physiological effort that you're making will make your body secrete fucking serotonin, right? It just happens naturally. Yep. So there, there's like that, that's, and it's a small amount. It's not like you're going to fucking fix your life by looking in the mirror, like the Joker and smiling like a crazy person. But, um, that's, that's pretty good evidence that the action part is what leads to the better outcome. I tell people this all the time. Uh, and you talk about it in your book a little bit, uh, where I think it's the second one. Uh, don't give away your power, I think is what it is. The way that I've always said it is that you can't control the outcome of things. You can control your attitude and your effort, right? So when you start right. blaming everybody else for all your problems or even blaming yourself necessarily, if, if the blame is on yourself, then it's because you didn't have the right attitude or you didn't fucking put enough effort into it, right? Uh, sometimes things just don't work out. That's all you can control is your attitude and your effort. So maybe you're not doing the right thing, right? Or maybe it's not the right time or whatever. Uh, I don't think there's a script to any of this shit necessarily, but, <clears throat> you know, the good news about that is it's in your control. And I think that's, for somebody like these days, man, we have this proclivity, and I think it's another part of the misunderstanding of the depression and suicide issues we're having. Um, we, we have this proclivity to pat people on the back, and coddle them and tell them it's okay and it's not okay. It's not okay to be a little bitch, frankly, right? And I don't, I, being a little bitch doesn't mean that you need to, uh, that you can't, or, or not being a bitch doesn't mean that you suck it up, keep your mouth shut and keep working. That's not what it means. What it means is this is all under your control, right? Like you get to decide mm -hmm. how tomorrow's gonna go. You know, and, and one of the, I like these, these memes that you see around every now and again, it's like, did you have a bad day or did you have a bad five minutes? And you let that make you have the bad rest of the day. Like this shit is under your control, right? Right. And when you're battling something like depression, it'll feel like you had a bad day because mm. your brain automatically goes for the negative. It will exaggerate how bad something is and it will just hone in on the one bad thing that happened. 
So you have to be able to take a step back and say, well, it's five good things that happened today too. And asking yourself that question can sometimes shift your attitude just a little bit. And when you talk about that importance of focusing on things that we can control, mm. it's so important. So many people come into my therapy office and they, they want to fix somebody else or they want they come in and they say, you know, I want this promotion. Well, you can't make your boss promote you, but let's focus on your behavior at work or let's focus on, on the action mm. that you take or let's talk about how you respond to other people, but let's not fix them. Life gets a lot better when we get better at asking ourselves, do I want to solve the problem or do I need to solve how I feel about the problem? Because sometimes we take the wrong action and I think that leads to tons of suffering. Somebody says, yeah, I'm behind on all my bills, so I'm just going to sit around and watch Netflix all weekend because then I'll feel okay and I can leave that behind. Well, the financial debt's still there on Monday morning and you didn't do anything to solve the problem. But on the other hand, somebody else's behavior, we might spend so much time worrying. What are they going to say? What are they going to do? You can't control that. So then you just need to control how you feel about it. Mm. And it's tough sometimes to say, well, what can I control? And the answer is usually not much, but I could control my effort and my attitude, but I don't want to do that, right? I don't want it to be my fault that I didn't put in enough effort or I don't want, it, I don't want to acknowledge that I could change my attitude because I'd rather blame you for saying you, you put me in a bad mood or you ruined my day. So it's that balance of taking the responsibility in the right places. I feel like you might be a rare bird. Uh, a psychotherapist who is holding people accountable or telling them to hold themselves accountable because you don't hear that much in the discourse these days. Um, you know, it's, we catastrophize a lot now. You, you kind of hinted towards that a moment ago. Um, and there's, it's a fine line too, man. It's not like, it's not as clear cut. So I, I, I do try to be understanding about this stuff because it is a very fine line between somebody who says, what's the worst that can happen and they leap or somebody who says what's the worst thing what's the worst that can happen and they sit around and think about the worst things that could happen and let them stop that stop themselves from leaping right it's a very right. fine line between those two things and you know psychology is contagious it really is when when you tell people that it's okay to not try then that's exactly what the fuck they're going to do um and that is like Man, that's the just the absolute worst thing you could do for a person. Like you've taken their their uh, autonomy away, you've taken their their identity away when you do that. It's like, oh, it's okay, just become a ward of the state or become a victim and let everybody fucking fawn over you for that reason. That's like, come on, man, that's not the way any of this is supposed to work. And you're gonna uh, the the really sad part about that is another it's another way that you're gonna push people away from you. You know what I mean? It chips away at your relationships when you're not confident. When you feel like a victim all the time, people stop, whether they'll admit it or not, people want to stop being around you, right? And it's, this is a very simple, I, I know this is going to sound like a platitude as well, it is a very simple formula. Dress for the job you want is a principle that has existed forever. And it means behave as if, right? So if you're looking mm -hmm. for, for example, a particular kind of partner, like this is my dream girl, this is my dream man, this is the kind of person that I want to end up with. Uh, okay, so step one, become the kind of person who would attract that kind of partner. That is all in your control, and then it will fucking happen eventually, right? Like, you, you it is absolutely in your control to do that shit. But we think, what, that we're going to swipe right a bunch of times and spin the fucking roulette wheel and put it all on black, and this is going to work? I mean, it's, 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 it's weird. we have this huge disconnect between effort and outcome now. And I don't understand... <sighs> Why is it so easy for people to just accept that? Like, oh, the world is wrong and it's not my fault. Because this is the first time in human history where we've really gotten fucking tricked by this stuff. You know, I, 
I had so many people come into my therapy office. They read the book, The Secret, and I've never, I've never read it. But so many people said that they read it, and then uh, they made vision boards, and they would put a sports car on their vision board and tell me straight face, like the universe is going to give this to me. I don't have a job, but yet it's on my vision board, so somehow it's going to happen. And I saw so many people that really thought, like, if you're a good person, then the universe is going to gift you something, mm. or if you spend enough time thinking about something, then. It'll make it happen. And that whole idea of no positive thinking doesn't change your life. It just inspires you to take the action that could change your life. I think that's one of the missing pieces. Is a lot of people truly believe that if you're a kind person, then somehow amazing things happen to you because somebody's gifting it to you. Or if you put in enough effort, then you deserve success. But like there's so many people who've tried things and it didn't work out. And it wasn't because they didn't try hard enough. It was just because that's the way that their uh their life ended up and uh, i think for a lot of people that's tough we wish that things were fair right like if mm -hmm. i knew for sure if i worked really really hard at this new business i'm building and it was going to work out based on how many hours i put in well then that would be great but we have to accept that things aren't 100 percent within our control but at the same time i can control the effort and there's that balance to be made mm. this episode is also brought to you by black rifle coffee dot com the best coffee in the world as a matter of fact they won both the gold and bronze medal at the Golden Bean Awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category. So the best coffee on earth literally was Circus Bear by Black Rifle, one of their ECS. So I recommend that you go sign up for the Black Rifle Coffee Club. Use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. And, uh, you know, you get all the benefits from being in the coffee club. You get the free shipping. You get access to all the partner deals. Uh, uh, you get access to the exclusive coffee club. You get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does. You know, it's a very large club that they have over there. And the coffees are premium. Every single one of them is good. Uh, you, you're going to get experience for you. You can do just the plain coffee club. And if you want your two bags of, of uh, espresso or your two bags of silencer smooth or whatever it is you drink, you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather, you can use the ECS, the exclusive coffee club, and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like. You know what I mean? So then you can order those premium coffees from Black Rifle as well. So, and we all know they got the best branding, the best merch, and they're buddies. You know, we're all friends here. Uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something, do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN, you're going to get those points off. This... I like I like the title of the book, the original Thirteen Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, because we really have kind of shied away from being resilient now. And this yeah, is we're I, like in the first couple of generations who have done this too. I think maybe part of it is just that we were just trying to stay the fuck alive for a long time, so there was no room for any of this nonsense. But it it does seem like um, we live everywhere, but in the now these days, worry about the future, regret the past. Like, no, people didn't have time for that bullshit back in the day. They were just trying to, like, find food. Before I answer that, I can't see you on the screen. Uh-oh. I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter for this, but... Uh, I can try to plug in and plug back in and see if it yeah. should. It'll just help me not talk over you if I can see you. Sure, yeah. 
Can you see me now? Nope. Mother of God. Uh, do it on the Zoom, homeboy. Oh, I see. Yeah. You turn the or turn the thing off when you unplugged it. No, no, no. Go down to the bottom and just click the. Yeah, you can do that too. You can do extra steps, sure. There we go. No, I see you now. No, no, no. That's just... okay. You see down at the bottom left, where there's the stop, start, stop video thing. Oh yeah. Okay. There we go. I got you now. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. So life's not fair. Yeah, and there's this notion that like kids are born resilient, which doesn't even make sense. Like nobody's born. We're not even these... born fully cooked. Like we, Correct. we, like we are. Our this is a huge evolutionary problem actually that we we're born what like three to six months too earlier than we should be because our shoulders are too broad to make make it through the wound or whatever the fuck so why the fuck would we expect that kids are resilient out of the wound i don't know and i hear so many adults say that like oh kids will bounce back they're resilient and but then we talk about adults who lack resilience so like what do you think happens that we lose resilience as time goes on obviously not and they're all skills, and I don't know why we don't teach skills about resilience in school. We don't talk about how to be mentally strong. Uh, our parents and our grandparents don't know how to teach us, so then we struggle to teach kids too. But I think it's so important that we start talking about mental strength. What does it mean? There's this idea that just pretending like nothing bothers you means that you're strong, and people get mental strength and mental toughness confused because when people are acting tough, they're usually not mentally strong at all. They're pretending like they have all the answers, that they don't need any help. And I think that's such a a disservice that we do to people when we imply that mental strength means you don't cry when you're sad or that yeah. you don't have any emotions at all, as opposed to being able to talk about mental strength and saying, yeah, life isn't fair and it's okay to be upset. You don't have to stay upset forever. You have some ability to control your emotions, but you don't have to pretend like you uh, are immune to the same problems other people have. And when life isn't fair, how do you cope with it? Yeah. I mean, how... But it's a skill, right? And how do you right. develop a skill? You do it by doing, right? I mean, you, you, right. certainly you, there's some academic portion to it where you can learn uh, some things, but to develop a skill, you have to do the skill. So it always, for me, this conversation always comes back to the conversation around um, bullying and how just completely asinine we've approached this subject. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt and colleague of the American Minds, there's a phrase in there that says, prepare your children for the road. Don't prepare the road for your children, right? Because you can't mm -hmm. prepare the road. Um, I think that's one of the big parts that we fucked up here is wrapping our kids in bubble wrap. You know what I mean? And then we're shocked when they don't know how to navigate their emotions or the world later on. I mean, that's that might be the dumbest thing we're doing right now, to be honest. Um, but we also don't, from the other perspective, we don't do anything to, uh, about the bully except for tell them that they're bad. We tell a child or whomever, right, that they're bad because they're a bully. It's like, probably not. That's probably not right. Like, there maybe sometimes that's true, but um, <sighs> why don't we think about why that bully is being a bully, right? That 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 seems like a good idea. Maybe they're getting bullied at home. Maybe they don't, they're not getting the kind of attention. Um, bullying is often the result of competition between people on an unlevel playing field, uh, and it's uh, a lot of it is rooted in this scarcity mindset as well. Like if you can't have 
uh, or if you have something, then I can't have it. And kids who are very unsophisticated in the way they go about, you know, their, their lives, the way they think about things, um, will think, oh, I'm not getting love at home, so this person can't get love at school or whatever the fuck, right? I mean, this, the, you can map mm-hmm. this onto pretty much anything. And it's a problem that needs to be solved and only gets solved through confrontation, through low-level conflict resolution, which, by the way, is probably, aside from just critical thinking, low-level conflict resolution is probably the most important skill you ever teach your child. Being empathetic is important. Um, uh, certainly being resilient is important. But a lot of this stuff is rooted in low-level conflict resolution. Sometimes little boys fight, you know what I mean, and jumping in and calling the cops because two six-year-olds got into a fucking slap fight on the playground is just – it's just absurd to me that we even think that that was something that should go down. Um, and you, you've written another book that's uh, about kids specifically, right, things that yeah, men, a- mentally strong kids don't do. I wrote the parenting book first because I wanted parents to have mm. the skills and then I have a kid's book so that kids can read about it in, in their own language too. And are the, are the 13 reasons the same? Um, so the, the parenting one, the, the things are different. So mm. it'll be like 13. Some of the things are like, don't shield kids from, from pain. Just like you say, we need to teach them about pain and that we don't take responsibility for their emotions. The 13 things in the kids book is sort of the inverse of the, the people book. So in my people book, I say stuff like mentally strong people don't feel sorry for themselves. But then in the kids book, this one is the only book I ever wrote about what to do instead of what not to do. Because I think if we teach kids these skills when they're young, then they won't grow up to develop the bad habits that we have as adults. Hmm. And and can you give me some examples of things you teach kids to do? Um, now, I, I, a lot of uh, one of my friends, Larry uh, Hagner, he runs this organization called the Dad Edge, and the purpose of it is to make men better fathers, better husbands, right? And a lot of it is rooted in um, not self-reflection, but like positive, not 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 positive, what am I, uh, like action verbs, right? Like to hear some things you can do to improve your relationships and shit like that. And one of them is this series of questions that he asks his kids every day when they come home from school. It's like, what's something you did that you really enjoyed today? The second one is, what's something that you didn't do well that you would like to improve on? And the third one is, what's something that you're looking forward to tomorrow, right? Like these little, uh, I guess, uh, small series of questions that can lead you in the right direction. But they're all, like, making the person think, like, right? Like, so you is it, was that part of your decision to make these – affirmative phrases instead of like don't do this or don't do that yeah i feel like kids get told what not to do all the time and there's a difference when you Mm -hmm. say to your kid don't run as opposed to walk right or we say don't uh, don't cheat on your homework well if you're struggling with your homework what can you do instead i think we teach kids enough of those skills we expect them to not misbehave or to not make a mistake but then we what are we teaching them like how do you do it instead or don't hit your brother well, what could you do instead? It's okay to feel angry, but what else could you do when you're angry? Could you talk about it? Could you go for a walk? So I really wanted this book about what do you do with those uncomfortable feelings? And what do you do when, uh, maybe when you think I'm not good enough, I can't uh, try out for the basketball team because I won't make it. What do you do? How do you manage that feeling and that thought? How do you uh, take positive action? So I really wanted kids to to have that roadmap of, all right, here's a whole bunch of different exercises and strategies you can try maybe when you feel bad or when you're struggling with with the bully at school or maybe you are the bully here's mm. what you can do about it um yeah it occurs to me that if you tell a kid and this might be true for adults as well 
But if you tell a kid not to do something, they're going to ask why, probably. And if you tell them to mm-hmm. do something, they'll probably ask how, which is a much better question uh, to, to ask because now they're thinking about doing it, right, instead of just sitting there with their hand in their lap. I, we, the, <laughs> we, we like to medicate for sure. I mean, your industry, no offense, but your industry in particular likes to medicate people. Um, and we, it seems like we're trying to reprogram nature in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like somebody is, uh, reacting pretty normally to the situation they're in considering their level of emotional intelligence. And we're like, Oh, that's fucking pill time for this asshole. Right. Um, like a six year old is having trouble sitting still for eight hours. Oh shit. We better drug them. I mean, what the fuck, man? That's crazy. Um, but it, it, that was all, all I don't think it was ever intended to help the kid it was intended to help the parent right you know what I mean right or, teachers or are teacher struggling because yeah. right they're saying I got 20 kids in the class and three of them are climbing over the chairs mm. and it's not fair to the other 17 kids so that's one solution is let's take the three kids who are struggling the most and you medicate them so that they calm down I don't think that's the best solution and we do these bizarre things too like uh, Bobby couldn't pay attention in class today, so I'm going to take away his recess. Well, you know what kids with ADHD need more than anything is the ability to go outside and run around so they can get their energy out. And then they can concentrate later when they spend some time in nature and they're doing something fun. So I, I think our system is set up poorly. And I think COVID made things even worse. We spent years telling kids don't spend too much time on your screens. And then we told them to sit still and, and stare at a screen for six hours a day. Makes absolutely no sense at all. So I think our... Video games, things like that are definitely making things worse for kids. They need more time outside, more unstructured time, too. Kids are way overscheduled. They're running from soccer practice to uh, band practice, and they're busy all the time. They need more time to just play outside and be kids. Yeah, that'd be dope, wouldn't it? Um, Right. You know, unscheduled playtime for kids. Play that with the phrase play date. Now, I get it. I'm not, I would never be critical of uh I, I i'm not a parent yet but when i am i'm sure that i'm gonna be i'm gonna fall victim to the same of the same stupid bullshit right um like i louis ck used to tell a really good joke about this he was like i used to judge parents who were sitting down at mcdonald's just shoving french fries into their kid's mouth until i had daughters and i was like fuck man i just got to keep these kids alive for a little while so it's okay. certainly a lot more difficult than than especially people without kids would admit but you know <clears throat> in the modern world as well, when most of the time both parents are working, which is not great to be honest, especially if you have kids like under eight years old, uh, that first, like that period between two years old and seven or eight years old is really important for kids to learn self-confidence and have that safety net, that parent around so they can take those little jumps, they become big jumps, right? Um, It's really important, but it's not always feasible for everybody. So you know, I understand the idea that you have to fucking you want to get them involved in something social and it has to right. happen between this hour and this hour because that's when you get off work and that's when you can pick them up. Uh, but fuck, man, we've got to figure out something better than this. Yeah. And I feel like uh, now that a lot of parents work from home, too, it used to be that parents came home from work at 6 p.m. and the rest of the evening was family time. But now parents feel so much pressure to be on their laptops, checking their work email and answering work calls in the evenings and on the weekends. And I think that's affected families too. There just aren't enough hours in the day for families to spend quality time together. In a lot of households where people say, yeah, but if I don't answer my boss at 7 p.m., then my job could be in jeopardy. 
And so they end up feeling like they have to be tethered to their electronic devices too. Yeah, man, that, that's something my buddy Gerard Michaels rails on all the time, but about primary education. The idea of homework is training children to think they're still tethered to that responsibility, that nine to five responsibility, even when they're home, right? Right. Like that, that you're training kids to, for it to be okay for them to, um, to have to work on their time, right? And I'm not a huge union guy necessarily, but one of the phrases from the late 19th century they used was eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, and eight hours for what you will, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's like you, <laughs> you're you not going to make any more money uh, by filling out an extra TPS report or whatever the fuck it is, right? Um, so, yeah, but I, I do that on the, on the inverse of that. I hear a lot of people, and this is less about professional stuff and more about just their personal life. Um, I hear people complaining about they don't have enough time to do the things they want to do, like work out or eat healthy or read or whatever the fuck else. Like, yeah, you, you definitely do. You definitely, you, nobody's, nobody that I know, unless you're working for the president right now, you're not working 18 to 20 hours a day, right? It's just not true. Right. So why do you, I wonder what, what it is that's, that makes a lot of folks these days crave free time. I hear this complaint a lot. Like, oh, I don't have, like, I'm only going to have like four hours when I get home before I have to go to sleep. It's like, okay, what the fuck? How many hours do you need to, and what are you doing? That four hours to watch television? What are you doing in those four hours that make them so important to you? Because it's never a good answer. Right. And I think our electronic devices have been like this time suck for so many people. And I, I do this in my own life, but I've done it with therapy clients too. Like, check that app, that thing in your phone, the well-being thing, or if you have an app that shows you how many hours you spend on Instagram or TikTok or just scrolling through the news. And people are always underestimating how much time they spend on their phones. Somebody will be like, oh, I spend like an hour a day. It's not a big deal. And then they come back and they're like, actually, it's like five hours a day. And even it's not even just like that hour when we're at home scrolling through our phones with a TV on in the background, but you see people at the grocery store scrolling through their phones. So in the in the two minutes that you're in the checkout line, instead of thinking about something or reflecting on life or thinking about what you're going to do later, our time gets eaten up and our brains don't really have time to focus. I mean, I'm talking to people who say, I listen to podcasts in the shower or while I'm doing the dishes, I'm, I've got my phone there and I'm watching TV. And so I think because of that, our brains just never get a break from anything. So I feel like people then think I don't have time to do anything all the time because there's all this constant noise. And sometimes that's true because there's always something going on in the background. And and it's scary to be alone with your thoughts and actually take some time out to, to rest or do something different or have quality time with your family without your phones there. Mm. Yeah, it seems like the constant devices are kind of the new opiate, I guess, right? I mean... Um, it's like, certainly it's entertaining. There's plenty, you can find, uh, an infinite amount of entertainment. So it isn't just, it's not like it's all bad necessarily, but, um, maybe because it's so easy to get and because it is so entertaining now that, uh, we just, we can't be alone with our thoughts anymore. You know what I mean? And that what, what's worse taking a pill that deadens them or, watching a screen that deadens them or doing both, I guess is what a lot of people do these days. Um, man, like that's, I think that's what, uh, part of a much larger issue where people are afraid to be alone. I don't mean in relationships. I mean like 
they can't fucking sit with their thoughts for any amount of time. They have to some something to distract themselves, right? Um, or and I or rather, I think it folds into this lack of self confidence, lack of social skills, lack of emotional intelligence stuff. Like you don't see people making eye contact as much anymore. And no, you're not all autistic asshole. Like, well, maybe there is a spectrum of we're all on it somewhere, but you're not suffering the the debilitating effects of autism for the most part. It's just like you have to do that to become comfortable doing something. You have to do it. If you're fucking stuck like this all day, looking up and seeing somebody's eye line and then immediately diverting your attention. If you feel yourself doing that, you need to make yourself go talk to people, get away from your phone a little bit and make direct eye contact. Right. Be a real human being again. Right. I think because of our phones we have the ability to to be in contact with experts we know other time in history we've been able to like get expert advice from a doctor on a podcast or watch youtube videos about something specific so i think we can use our devices to grow mentally strong our devices can give us so much information for free anytime that's amazing most of us aren't using them for that though and as you say how many times these days do you go somewhere and and there's people that maybe don't know each other, but nobody's introducing themselves or each other and people just awkwardly stand around and then they pull out their phones and, and nobody's interacting and talking to each other. And we know from the research that kids have, the more time they spend on their phones, the more trouble they have identifying other people's emotions. If they look at sad faces and happy faces, they have trouble identifying how somebody's feeling. But then they sent all the kids away to camp for a week. And after just one week, when they came back, they took away their devices for those seven days. Then they gave them the opportunity again to identify how people were feeling. Just one week without their devices, the kids' ability to recognize people's emotions skyrocketed. So I think just taking breaks from our devices can improve our social skills, forcing yourself to do uncomfortable things, go to places, talk to people, uh, ask people questions, talk to the stranger next to you while you're on your commute if that's what you need to do. But make sure that you're putting yourself out there to talk to people, even when it feels awkward mm -hmm. or uncomfortable, do it anyway. Yeah, it's kind of, that's pretty interesting. Um, so Colleague in the American Mind, they talk a lot about undoing through catastrophizing, like teaching, we're, we're undoing cognitive behavioral therapy, right? CBT, which is like one of the more effective forms of, uh, of, of behavioral therapy. Historically, we're kind of undoing all that by teaching people it's okay to be a victim, teaching them to catastrophize every situation and all that shit. And I wonder if there isn't some correlation between this study you're talking about and the rise in autism diagnoses, right? Because we're basically teaching people, uh, uh, through both classical and operant conditioning to exhibit the symptoms of autism without necessarily having it, right? Because it, it, there, 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 right. Are, there are physiological factors that create li literal autism, right? Um, but you can also mimic the behavior of that, which is, you know, it's gonna, that's essentially a false positive. Now we're diagnosing people with shit that they don't have. And it's like, oh, it's okay. You're, you're just autistic now. Like, no, you're just showing the signs of it because you programmed yourself to fucking do this. Right. I think uh, these days the autism spectrum gets it's kind of the umbrella diagnosis. The uh, pendulum swings around for a while. Everybody was diagnosed with bipolar and then we figured out not everybody in the world has bipolar. So the pendulum swings the other way and then there's always the diagnosis of the minute. And I do think sometimes people have social anxiety and they get diagnosed with autism. It just means they're awkward or they feel awkward and uncomfortable talking to people. And why might that be the case? Maybe it's because they haven't been out of the house in two years and they've been staring at their phones and they haven't pushed themselves to have face-to-face -face conversations with people. 
So I, I do think that's a big problem. I do think a lot of people, and even if you do, say, fall somewhere on the spectrum of autism, doesn't mean you can't socialize or you can't go out there and do things. And uh, But if we use that as an excuse of I can't do these things, even when people say I can't do that because I have anxiety or I have social anxiety, so I can't be around people. You know what the cure for social anxiety is? It's being around people and it's exposure therapy and doing those things that are hard to do. Yeah, it's literally the only way to solve that problem. Um Right. Yeah, it's really, it's all super, like, it, I, I talk to people who, you know, are raising kids or, because I, I, my, my experience with that is mostly training soldiers, you know, 17 to 19 year olds for the most part. Uh, but it's not that much different, to be honest. I mean, it's, you're using the same strategies and stuff. And one of the things you do is you don't, if somebody comes into the situation and they have uh, uh some kind of limiting factor, right? Whatever it happens to be, whether it's physical or mental or whatever the fuck. Like, usually, na nature is interesting this way. Unless you're completely fucked up, um, it spends its energy. It tries its best to spend its energy. Like, plants reach for the sky to get more sunlight. Uh, but there's a price to pay for that, right? There's always a price to pay. But, you know, in the inverse of that, um, if you're, and I'm not talking about daredevil by the way where your senses senses get heightened because you lose one that's not real that's nonsense but um usually evolutionarily speaking if you're deficient in an area you're probably going to be better somewhere else right which means right. i can put this person in a different position and they're going to succeed where somebody else might not there's always a positive way to look at this stuff right like yeah you may not i'm i'm fucking uh six foot tall i'm probably not going to play in the nba not going to dunk a basketball anytime soon i'm also white so that doesn't help um but there's a lot of other shit, right? You can teach. So if we've seen, and I hate to use uh, sports analogies, uh, but we've seen over the past like 15 years, uh, the big man, the center in the NBA go from somebody who plays a certain way to now is playing on the perimeter and stuff like that. Like this happened in just a couple of years, right? And we're talking about a combination of physical and mental evolution over the a very short amount of time. Right. And it's completely changed the way some of these people's bodies operate. Um, <clears throat> when, if somebody has social anxiety or something like that, usually what it means is they're one, they haven't had enough experience with it, but a lot of times it means they're more sensitive to what's going on around them. That's not a fucking weakness. That is a superpower, right? If you can harness that, if you learn how to use it correctly, then you can be really good at reading people, which will help you in every facet of life, right? Whether it's in business or just being an empathetic person, right? You'll, you'll be able to understand people emotionally a little bit better. So it sucks that we have, anytime something like this comes up, we have this tendency to be like, oh, they're they, they, she's not going to come out tonight because she just feels anxious about stuff. Like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? There's like, that is, a, that is a symptom, right? But the underlying cause isn't intrinsically negative or positive. You, it's like what you do with it. Right. And I think when we have this idea that we're broken and we treat ourselves like we're super fragile, it makes everything worse. And the most tangible story I can think of is I did it in my own life. I sprained my ankle a few years ago and the doctor said it was so swollen instantly. The doctor said, I'm pretty sure it's broken. We just can't see on the x-ray that it's broken, but I'm going to send you home, come back in in three days and we'll re-x-ray you when the swelling's gone down. So I went home totally freaked out that I had a broken ankle. So I didn't dare move for like three days. I didn't put any weight on it. I didn't move my foot. Three days later, my 
ankle was actually even more swollen than before. So I went back to the doctor and they said, you know, we could try to re-x-ray it, but it's not going to show anything different because it's way too swollen. So they sent me home again and said, we need to wait till the swelling comes down. So now I'm super convinced my leg's broken because the doctor again said, I broke my leg and it didn't show up for seven days. So go back home. I didn't do anything for the next few days. My leg just got worse and worse. Finally, they sent me to a physical therapist who said, after about two minutes of looking at it, no, it's just sprained. Your leg's not broken. And by the end of the appointment, I'm walking around. But it was because I was convinced my ankle was broken and I didn't move and I treated myself like it was broken that I made it worse. And I see this happen with people who say, I have anxiety, so I can't do anything. And then they don't go out. And then because they're treating themselves like they're really fragile, their friends and family start to treat them like they're super fragile too. Like, I'll order for you at the restaurant or we'll come to you so you don't have to come out of the house. And then it just makes it worse. And so in addition to cognitive behavioral therapy, I'm a big fan of acceptance and commitment therapy. So maybe the truth is you have anxiety and how can you still live your best life with anxiety? You don't have to wait for your anxiety to magically disappear. You might just say, I have anxiety and it's tough for me to go out and I'm going to do it anyway, mm. or I'm still going to do these things or I'm going to find workarounds so that if I struggle with anxiety, maybe I'm not going to volunteer to give a speech in front of a hundred people, but I'll raise my hand in a meeting with five people and just finding these little things you can do so that you don't feel like you have to wait until something gets better to make your life. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it sucks that we have to explain, re-explain this stuff all the time. But that's kind of a symptom of Western culture. We forget that the Stoics exist every hundred years or so. And then people start talking about like, oh, these guys right. are fucking brilliant. Like, yeah, they have been for 2000 fucking years, dumb, dumb. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, it sucks that we have to go through this stuff and, and rediscover. But I guess that's just the way it is. I don't know. Um, because what a waste of time, you know, what a waste of time. And then often a waste of potential for people who feel like, uh, well, I can't do that because of whatever reasons. Like, no, that's not true, man. Um, and I think that the internet memes, sometimes <laughs> there's a lot of self-help gurus who make these memes that sound inspirational. And uh, and because of that, they get passed around. Millions of people talk about it. And they'll and then people think, well, you know, I can do absolutely anything if I put my mind to it. Therefore, if I can't be an NFL player, it's because I'm not good enough. So therefore, I'm not going to do anything in life. I think, well, no, that's not true. Like, me personally, I'm a five foot four woman. I'm not going to be in the NFL no matter how hard I try, but it doesn't mean I didn't put in enough effort. It just means that's not meant for me. But yet I can still live a really good life by finding something that's a better fit for me physically and emotionally and mentally and all of those things. So I think there's that balance to be struck of, yeah, you have certain limitations in life and you can still live your best life. And yet, again, you don't have to look very far for Internet memes that will tell you the exact opposite of those things. Mm. Yeah, well, um, probably don't build your life uh, around memes, I guess. I mean, I, I enjoy them as much as the next person, but right. uh, yeah, maybe dig a little deeper. And some of the ways you can do that is by reading your books. You've got, you said this is the sixth one now. It is. So it started with 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And that's when parents said, oh, if only I'd learned these sooner. How do I teach them to my kids? So that led to 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. And then I had a lot of women that said, well, we talk about mental toughness like Navy SEALs. What's it look like to be a strong woman? So 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do came out. And then the kids book, 13 Things Strong Kids Do. And then I made a workbook, the 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do workbook. And then my most recent one is the 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. And that's out now? Or is it pre -order? It is. Yep. Just came out in December. Oh, great. So, yeah, you can go check that out. You can also check out Mentally Stronger with Dervis, uh, Amy Moore. Oh, God, Amy Moore. And uh, tell me about the show. What do you guys talk about on there? 
So on my podcast on Mondays, I interview somebody. It might be an author, an expert, uh, an athlete about what helps them stay mentally strong in life, what skills and strategies, how they've gotten through tough times. And then on Fridays, I do a solo episode where I share a specific mental strength exercise, a strategy that can help you in everyday life manage your thoughts, your feelings, or your behavior. And we try to keep those to 10 or 15 minute short little episodes that help people say, all right, here's here's what I'm going to do this week. If uh, someone was going to go listen to the show, is there an episode or two you would recommend them starting with or just go from the beginning? I mean, what is there, 80 episodes or so? 80, I think so. There's, uh, there's a Friday fix in there that's kind of like the ultimate guide to building mental strength. I don't remember what number it is, but that's a good one to start with. Okay. Um, and what else do you have going on? Are you working on another book already? Because it seems like you're churning these things out pretty rapidly now. So I don't have another book in the works at the moment, but uh, I think right now I'm just working on the podcast mm -hmm. and uh, uh, speaking, do a lot of speaking engagements about mental strength and just trying to keep spreading the word about how to grow mentally stronger. Good. Well, we've talked about a lot today. Um, I wonder if there isn't like an elevator pitch, some brief advice that you would give to people who are trying to, you know, figure this shit out, try to be more mentally tough. So the biggest thing is, is that your brain lies to you. Your brain's a jerk. It will tell you things that aren't true, but it will it's really convincing too. It will try to convince you that you're not good enough or you can't possibly succeed. And the best thing that you can do is just challenge those thoughts. When your brain says you can't do something, try to do it anyway. And over time, when you do those things, so your brain says, yeah, you can't do that, and you do it, you start to train your brain to see you differently. And your brain, after a while, can be like, oh, you're actually more capable and competent than I give you credit for. And you can physically alter your brain by doing the things mm. you thought you couldn't do. Yeah, that's actually part of the Socratic method. It's called challenging assumptions, right? Like, again, mm -hmm. this is another thing that's existed for over 2,000 years that we're having to reinform people about. But yeah, you like uh, definitely don't just believe what you're telling yourself. As, as a matter of fact, I think this is true not just of um, negative things, also positive, right? Uh, and this, right. like, we, we have, we, we do a lot in the, uh, I guess, social and political debate. Uh, arena around here and one of the things i instruct people to do pretty often is uh the more you want to believe something the more skeptical of it you should be right somebody somewhere is probably lying to you about something it doesn't mean you're completely wrong but anything that looks too perfect is for the most part um unless it's math then it's usually right but other other than that if it's social stuff or psychological stuff it's almost always there, there's something you're missing and it look you just there's no need to have blind spots, right? Like you can figure this stuff out. Um, yeah, that's good advice. I like that. I like the idea of, of challenging your assumptions, whether it's positive or negative, for sure. Um, yeah, I think the positive ones are important too. Like 90% of us think we're better than the average driver, right? <laughs> Statistically improbable, but yet, so I think sometimes to get some more insight onto, into our thoughts and why we believe the things we do is important. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I'm definitely not, uh, I don't even pay attention when I'm driving, to be honest. Hopefully this doesn't come up in court one day, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it's so boring, make it more exciting, you know, and I'll pay attention. That's not my fault. That's the, the department of transportation's fault. <laughs> um, see now I'm redirecting the blame back to the government, which is something right? we like to do. Um, okay, great. This has been uh, very illuminating. I'm definitely interested in, uh, I've read one of your books. I read the first one. I haven't read the couples one though. I, I really want to check out. I'm going to go do that later, but um, thank you for coming today. This has been very good. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.